0: Our scripture reading this morning is Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 8. Sorry, 1 through 7. Isaiah 9, 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord.
1: This past Wednesday, I was leaving work at about 4:30. This past Wednesday, I I was leaving work at about 4.30 p.m., and I I stopped by Megan's office to say goodnight, and our custodian, Daniel, was there as well. And as I walked in her office, I had one of those fall moments, and by that I mean uh, the season fall. You know what those are, where you go, wow, it's dark already, 4.30, and it's totally dark. Now, the rain clouds and the dark sky helped that along a bit, But as I walked outside, and and I like the rain, but I had this thought, okay, we are headed into our dark season here in the Pacific Northwest. Well, just a few hours earlier, on that same day, in a town called Utkiavik in Alaska, on that same day, you see it there on the map coming up behind me or on your screen, that town Utkiavik, it's the northernmost town in Alaska, you see it there. On that same day this week, just about the time I was walking outside complaining about our dark, early sunset, Utqiaġvik had their last sunset until January 23rd, 2021. I know, it's crazy. Here's a picture of it, of their town. I kind of like, I really love that cold kind of ominous picture there. You really get the sense. It's actually an actual picture from this last Wednesday, at sunset in that town. Can you imagine, what do they do with 66 days of dark? Imagine the college student who said on that Wednesday, I think I need to pull an all-nighter tonight. (laughs) But anyways, can you imagine the gloom, the seasonal depression that I know some of you get even in Oregon? Can you imagine what 66 days of darkness does to your eyes or your brain? Or your crime rate in your town. I don't know. But what I do know is that while 66 days of darkness is long, as we come to our Isaiah passage today, Isaiah is talking about a world that had been in darkness since Genesis 3. And not just up at the region of the northern Arctic Circle, but the entire globe was in darkness. Can you imagine if we lost the sun? The earth was in spiritual, truth, reality, life, and hope, darkness, until a light appeared. This Advent season, over three weeks, we will behold. We're calling it our series, Behold. It's our Christmas series, earth with Light, in the birth of a baby. So let's discover the answer to the question. Everyone's asking in this world, whether they know it or not, how do we fix this dark world? Well, let's begin by looking at Isaiah 9 and the fact that the darkness must be dispelled by an external light. Hopefully you got your outline with you and your scripture open to Isaiah 9, the passage that was just read for you as we look at this. That the light must be expelled by, by an external light. Christmas is a time of of lights, and and it's that for a reason. The imagery of light coming to darkness is the story of of Christmas. And unless you understand this, you don't really know what Christmas is about or or the grand sweeping impact that that day had on the world, The, the world into which this light comes. As we get to Isaiah 9, It doesn't sound like a great place. Verses 1 and 2 describe it as a place of of gloom, of anguish, of, of contempt, and that people were walking and dwelling in not just darkness, but deep darkness. That doesn't sound like such a great world. So how is the world, fortune tellers, trying to talk to even the dead for guidance, For answers. Think about that. God's people looking to other voices more than him for guidance. And chapter 8 ends with deep darkness. Here's the verses. You see them coming up on the screen. Here's how it ends. Right before our passage in Isaiah 9, it ends in chapter 8, 21 to 22. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry, And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. These are people with a different authority than God. A different attitude about the future and different expectations from life. Distressed, they're described. Hungry, enraged, contemptuous to God. And so what do they do? They look to the earth for their answers rather than to God as they were uh, looking to mediums and fortune tellers. But they end up beholding even more darkness. And you could say their world is our world. 2020 has been a dark year, and not just in America. There's been suffering, violence in the streets, abuses of power, our pandemic, grief, a, a, a massive swell in, in homelessness all in our cities all along the West Coast, injustices, broken families, you name it. We want help. We, we want someone to turn on the lights to fix it. The problem is, no one knows how to fix it. But just like in Isaiah 8, they tried, we try too. And so we look to the earth as they did in Isaiah 8 to solve our problems and solve problems that only heaven can fix. And we end up beholding darkness, as the text says in Isaiah 8. I mean, don't we do this when we look to things like medicine and science and, and free markets and technology? We look to all of these things, even as they're good and of themselves. We look to these things as if they will solve the ultimate problems and darkness of the world. A man named Yuval Noah Harari, he's an Oxford-trained historian and philosopher. He works at a, now at a university. In Jerusalem. In the last few years, he's published two really influential, I think, multi million uh, bestsellers where he's looked at technology and the future of humanity. You know, when a former president, uh, Barack Obama, endorses your book, you know you run in influential elite circles, and his books have had a major impact. But listen to this man as he talks about death the greatest darkness, and listen to his solution. Here's what he said. Humans don't die because God decreed it or because uh, mortality is an essential part of some great cosmic plan. Humans have always died due to some technical glitch. The heart stops pumping blood, and he went on, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and mentioned other illnesses. And every technical problem he went on has a solution, We don't need to wait for the second coming in order to overcome death. A couple of geeks in a lab can do it. Think about that. On the one hand, you have to admire his optimism that he thinks we can absolutely overcome death. And in fact, he really believes the darkness in this world, that is death, can be solved by technology alone. Or a different example, a famous comedian I was uh, looking at on Instagram the other day, he's been saying lately on his Instagram feed, as he's been talking about COVID, he just kind of screams at the camera and says, fix it, fix it, as he's uh, quarantining for so many days, expresses his frustration, fix it. Well, who? Who, Who's going to fix it? Who's going to make the dark plague go away? We have this insatiable desire and drive in the West for progress. And we just assume that all the world's problems can be solved by some technology, some app, some new appliance, or if we could just get the perfect form of of government in place. But what do we know as Christians? The darkness remains not only physical death, what about spiritual darkness? The spiritual darkness of the human heart. How do you program or microchip that away? For all their intelligence, from the elite of the world, uh, as I quoted, down to the comedian, fix it. When you look to the earth to cure life's biggest problems, you're not living in reality. And you just end up, as Isaiah 8 said, beholding More darkness. So let's behold reality. Let's look now from darkness to light. We're going to call this one, light equals the the realistic solution in Isaiah 9. Reality, the realistic solution. If humanity, us as people, is humanity's only hope, things will only get darker. I mean, if you believe you're the ultimate hope for humanity, and then you add to that, you believe that your group has the ultimate answers, what lengths will you go to to fix humanity, to to flip on the light and get rid of some of this darkness? The realistic solution on the one hand that we're going to talk about is not so optimistic as to say, hey, we can put the world right. We have the means in ourselves. It's either this technology or this government or this or that, I mean, that view doesn't understand the depth of the problem. You even talk about a spiritual-level problem. And it only thinks in material terms, not spiritual. But Christians, even as we're realistic, we aren't hopeless either. Yes, we know we are spiritually dead in our sin. And that is the root of all our problems. And yes, there is nothing you can do about it on your own. But... There is hope. Verse 2 says in Isaiah 9, a great light has come and it has shined upon us. Do you you see in that language Isaiah uses? We see the solution has to come from outside of ourselves. It, It comes in the glory of God in the face of a baby, Jesus Christ. That is who the prophecy of Isaiah 9 is pointing towards. The solution solution doesn't come from earth. He comes to earth. Verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born. He has come to us. The realistic solution, the light, has come to us. Uh, But if darkness is ignorant and and hopelessness and evil, then what is this life? Or this light, excuse me. Well, it's in the description of what you just filled in in your outline. It is the realistic solution we need on this earth. Isaiah here, as he talks about the light, is speaking about the sun, uh, speaking in terms of the sun, as he's talked about this light that is dawning. He says, look, it's been darker a lot longer than 66 days. We were born into darkness, but now a light comes to us that not only brings us life like the sun does with its warmth and and, and the process of growth it brings to the the vegetation and plant uh, life and that even produce oxygen for us, but the light also shows you the way to truth, reality. One of the things you learn as a parent pretty quickly is the importance of light. How many of you can remember, or maybe, maybe you're still right in the middle of it, how many of you can picture getting up at night when your child calls you and going to their room in the dark? I don't really know of anything more painful than stepping with bare feet on a Lego in the dark. (laughs) I know you know what I mean. Your house that you know so well can become a hazardous obstacle course in the dark. And bumping into the corner of a dresser or stepping on toys can, can actually really hurt you in the dark at night, but that's one thing. Imagine, though, entering into eternity in darkness and bumping into the judging wrath of a holy God. That's another story. Jesus came as the light for us to see, for us to behold all truth, since God is the source of all truth, and your life and every breath you take, even your very being is borrowed from him, I read this week in a book. On this passage, even your very being is borrowed from him. And when you respond in faith to that light, you behold with Christ the spoils of the war he has won by removing that wrath of God, by removing that darkness, by taking it himself, by winning a battle for you. We get to see in this passage in these next verses in our second point here today that a battle is won for us when we behold him when we see the light a battle is won by another and you and i we get to enjoy the spoils well let's behold it as verses three through five they they give us some of the results of beholding the light that hopefulness that comes in verse two light brings joy and victory as well, the passage speaks to. Can you imagine for just a moment what day 33 is like in Kiavik, Alaska? Right in the middle of those 66 days of darkness. What would that be like halfway, hey, halfway through? Our total darkness, only 33 days to go. Want to play another round of skipo? <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. And we know in the Pacific Northwest that seasonal affective disorder—it's a real thing. Some people are impacted incredibly by it. Come December, January, February, and the dawning of the light, Isaiah says here, it it comes, and when it comes, it, it increases things. It increases the nation. It brings many sons to glory. The song says. And those sons and daughters are full, not of darkness, sadness, depression, anguish in this cloudy sky, but full of joy. An increase of joy, the passage says, comparing it to the abundant harvest with spoils to share for all. This joy, like the light, was was like a flash upon us, Isaiah says. It was like a light switch turned on. It sprung out of eternity to to focus in, in time and space. Isaiah describes it in verse 4. He says, it came and it was like the breaking of a weight. The breaking of a rod used to carry things on your shoulders. Like the breaking of an oppressor. Like any, he likens it to... The, the battle of Midian, he says in that verse. You might remember that story from Judges 5 and 6. God's people were under the yoke of oppression, much like the verse 4 describes. Uh, the oppression of the Midianites. And they were greatly outnumbered. But Gideon, the story records, one of the judges, was still, still had about 32,000 men. For the battle. So, not chunk change, you know, he had a, good, a decent amount of men, 32,000. But through a course of some tests that God gave him for the men, God whittled it down to 300 men. So that those men would behold the power of God in victory. He would win the battle. There'd be no room for them to say, look at the might that we had with 300 men against so many. He would win the battle, not them. But then they would enjoy the spoils. So the story goes on that the 300 men approached Midian at nighttime, who Scripture says were numbered like the sands, it says in Judges 6. And Gideon and his men had torches covered, lit torches inside these pots that they carried. And on the other hand, they had trumpets. And when it was time and they surrounded them at nighttime, these 300 men with their torches and the trumpets, and the time came and Gideon gave them the, the signal, they all smashed their pots and the light flicked on it, flooded the valley. And the trumpets blasted at the same time. The story records that in the confusion and chaos and in the in, uh, intervention of God, the enemy defeated Themselves, himself, in a wild frenzy of swords, they took each other out, it says. This flicking on of the lights in this great, powerful display in Gideon's story kind of reminded me this week of the glorious appearance of the shining angel army at the birth of Christ. In the night sky to those shepherds, a light dawned, as Luke 2 records, glory to God in the highest, And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. God's appearance as it came in this baby Jesus Christ, his appearance is like the flashing of light and torches, like these angels in the sky speaking truth to these lowly shepherds. His appearance brings us reality because God is reality. And God's light shines on the way to peace and truth as the angels sung to the shepherds. Peace on earth and truth. The spoils of the war, much like the battle of Gideon and the Midianites, the spoils of the war, Jesus won the victory over sin and death. The defeat of our enemy, Satan at the cross. You know, the cross is where Satan really, in a way, turned the sword on himself, just like the Midianites did. His moment of greatest victory, he thought, was his moment of greatest defeat. And Jesus shines a light like the torches held high in the sky as he comes to earth, a baby, but comes as the king like no other. Let's look at this king. Jesus is the king like no other, with a kingdom eternal. We know Isaiah is speaking of this one. Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills these prophecies of light, of victory. But let's close now on this third point by looking at verses 6 and 7. And behold the first coming of Jesus this Advent. Coming back to that picture, the dark uh, sunset in Ukiahvik, Alaska, can you imagine what would it take to shatter those 66 days of darkness in the Arctic Circle at Ukiahvik? I mean, think about it. It's been that way forever. what What would it actually take to make those 66 days of darkness go away? Take a look at this slide popping up, a a slide of the changing of the seasons. And as you look at the diagramming of the changing of the seasons going uh, counterclockwise, Earth right now uh, in late November is about two-thirds of the way, as you see there on the left of the slide, two-thirds of the way from uh, fall or autumn equinox to the winter solstice on the left side of the slide. We're about two-thirds of the way there. And Utqiagic right now doesn't get light because of the tilt of the earth's axis away from the sun. It keeps them in the dark even when they are turned in daytime and facing the sun. The sun never gets above the horizon. For Utkiavik to get sunlight right now would take an astronomical, supernatural, earth-altering or earth-shifting event. The hand of God would literally have to take the earth by its axis at the North Pole and pull it upright towards the sun. Talk about earth altering. It sounds impossible, doesn't it? It would alter everything about earth, wouldn't it? It would change the course of everything, not only the axis of the earth, but history as we know it would change if God's hand worked in such a mighty way to bring light to Ukiavik right now. What if I told you that Isaiah 9-6 was even more astronomical, supernatural, earth-altering or earth-shifting event than what I just described? In the simple words, for to us a child is born. To us, a son is given. Would you believe me? Would you believe me? Even if you call yourself a Christian today, a follower of Christ today, would you believe me that those simple words there are more earth-altering than if God was to come and take the earth by its axis and bring light to Utqiagic right now? Do you live with that kind of confidence? I, I think we would struggle with that. I think we do. Because we have so many in our lives that buy for our allegiance when Jesus is the true king, verses six and seven, des- described for us. So let's look for a moment at the identity of the king, this baby born, this son given to us. What, what is his identity? Who is he? We look to so many lesser lights in our life when the true light has come. Beholding the first advent of Jesus is the earth-altering event. The the all-earth, all-of-earth-altering event. Of all events. And when he comes as the great light, the way and the truth, he puts all those lesser lights in their place. Those things that vie for our allegiance. Those things we place our ultimate confidence in. So so who is he if he is the ultimate one? The verse goes on to say in verse 6, I'll read the whole thing again. You'll see it on the screen. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The identity is God in flesh. It's a burst of flashing light upon the stage of earth. In this verse, to a human child now, the son that's given is applied these four titles that are only reserved for God. His everlasting father is one of them, which means everlasting father, which means creator in some way. And yet he's born as a baby. How does that work unless he is God in flesh? So reality then says this, the the light says this, Jesus isn't just to be liked or admired or or given a nod and a wink and a tip of the hat at Christmas. The earth ultra-reality is that this light, Jesus, is God in flesh and is to be worshipped. That's what Advent is about. That's what Advent is to remind us of. And in his lifetime, that's what we saw if you look at the Gospels. They either flat out rejected him and wanted him dead, or they fell on their knees and said, you are the light that has come into the world. You alter everything. You change everything. This is the true king Isaiah is describing. The true Messiah Israel was going to wait for. Eternal Father. Almighty God. But he's also called the Wonderful Counselor. What does that mean? It means that Jesus Christ has lived it. And he can sympathize and and counsel us. Remember, he was born in a manger. He's lived a real life. He's felt real pain. He's experienced real loss. He's suffered. He's lived and known what it is like to live in this dark world. So he can counsel you. 2020 has been hard. As we come to its close, we've said that multiple times here, and I know you're saying it in your own personal lives. Some of you have suffered immensely and still are as we come into the close of the year. And many of us this year, we've been looking to all kinds of places and people to be our counselors, whether it's someone we know, a voice on the internet, a 24-hour news channel, a a, a friend. We're looking at all kinds of places and people to be our counselors. One of the things we've mentioned a few times in the context that this passage takes us back there is that I've never seen such fervor for political figures as we have, I think, in my lifetime, at least in this year, on both sides, such a, a fervor, a zeal, uh, a, a devotion, you might even say, would be a good word, I think. As we said, politics matter. And yes, Christians should be involved. And yes, God has ordained the sphere of politics, it's His. But there's nothing a politician can either give you or take away from you that can destroy you or keep you in a place of darkness or joylessness if you're finding your identity in His identity. The ultimate politician, you might not like me using that word for Christ, but this context makes it clear, the government, the truest government is his. Then there is no counsel the politician can give you that will save your soul. I only say that because verse 7 says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 2020 has revealed to us that we are putting our zeal, our trust, too much in other things, and princes and armies and men and women of this earth, solutions of this earth to deliver us from a darkness that only a king like Christ can bring. We're relying sometimes too much on human agencies to deliver us in ways that only Christ can, and maybe that's you today. And as the passage says, all of these kingdoms of earth and all of their leaders, all of them, are going away. But do you know what's coming? A kingdom of Abrahamic proportions. That's what's coming. A large kingdom. a kingdom of Abrahamic proportions. What does that mean? Well, in our Genesis series, we've been going through these covenantal promises to Abram. And you probably remember them from just a few weeks back. You'll have a great family, so many people, more than the dust and the stars and Abram and you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There's no end, Isaiah says, to the increase of this government, of this king, of his citizens, of his kingdom. And Isaiah says, not only will it increase, but it's forevermore. It will go on Forever. That's what beholding is about. That's what Advent is about. That's what thinking and taking the prophecies of Isaiah 9 and opening up the New Testament and seeing who is this one? Who is the light? That's what it's about. The true king has come. And our call is to behold him. So, how do you behold this light? How does he become yours? How do you enter this kingdom or, or sink deeper into him and immerse yourself even more in his truth and his goodness and his beauty? The passage tells us to us a son is given. It's grace. It's a gift. We receive it by faith. Who doesn't like to open a Christmas present or watch others open them. A son is given. He comes through grace. But it's an interesting kind of gift. It's not like most other gifts that make you feel really good about yourself or a great sweater you get that you put on or an outfit or something like that. This is a gift that humbles you. Because to behold this gift is to say, The darkness of my heart needs the light of the Son of God. And my desperate state needed nothing less than the earth-altering arrival of the Son of God and His death for me. That is the realistic solution to the darkness. Not just for those of you who have never beheld the darkness, that's the solution for those of us who have been living in that light For our entire life. And for those of you who've never come to the light and are still living in darkness, that's the solution we all need. And if we behold it, if we live in it, in Him, Christ doesn't just restore 66 days to light. He gives us an eternity of it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gift, the very first advent and coming of the light of the world, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came as a baby, God in in flesh, came to earth to show us reality, to give us a a, a realistic solution to the problem of darkness in the world. And our God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you won the battle. That the victory is yours. And as gracious recipients, we receive the spoils of it. So in faith, Jesus, this Christmas season, may we behold you in your first coming, in your residing in our hearts now, and look towards even your second coming this Christmas season. Be with us as a church. May we have a rich time of beholding these truths, And may it be an engagement with you that transforms us in worship, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.